Welcome to another episode in the Fleming Foundation's podcast series, From Under the Rubble. Today is the second episode in a series in which we hope to clarify the legal and moral status of human life. I'm Rex Guy, your host, and the guest today is, yes, Dr. Thomas Fleming. Welcome. Good to be with you. In the first episode, you indicated that Roe versus Wade was a bad law. What did you, it was on the penumbra Remember that? Yes, the, in the penumbra of the Constitution located a right to privacy. And penumbra was kind of a made-up thing? Yeah, certainly, as there's nothing in the first hundred years of constitutional interpretation, anything um, like that. Okay, then what you're saying is a misreading of the Constitution, but you also rejected arguments against abortion that are based on a right to life. Let's start by briefly restating what you think is obvious. Yes, unfortunately, the... Pro-life movement, often known as the right to life movement, has adopted very sloppy language, which indicates sloppy thought. Their hearts are in the right place, certainly. But if there's a right to life, if we just use that phrase, Mm -hmm. then maybe we shouldn't be eating meat or executing murderers or even using antibiotics that kill living beings that are just happen to be within our body. I see. Over 100 years ago, G.K. Chesterton ridiculed this line of argument as if he was anticipating the vegetarian movement in the preface to his wonderful book, The Napoleon of Notting Hill. He says in the preface, Tolstoy... And the humanitarians said the world was growing more merciful, and therefore no one would ever desire to kill. Mr. Mick, who's an an invented character, Mr. Mick not only became a vegetarian, but at length declared vegetarianism doomed, shedding, as he called it finally, the green blood of the silent animals. Oh, sad. And predicted that men in a better age would live on nothing but salt. (laughs) Well, then came that pamphlet from Oregon called... Why should salt suffer? (sighs) It's interesting that even then, the Pacific Northwest was already known to be the home of zanies. Zanies. Okay, but wait a minute. (laughs) But you would agree, wouldn't you, that abortion is forbidden to Christians and condemned by the scriptures. I mean, there's scriptures like Jeremiah 1.5, I knew you before you were born. Uh, The one in Psalms, uh, you are made fearfully and wonderfully. So there is a consciousness that God understood us, knew us before we were in the womb. So you'd agree that Christians are, you know, pro-life. Christians have to be pro-life for a number of reasons, but the scriptural condemnations are really all sort of very highly fanciful interpretations of the text. Okay. And, uh, for example, the, yes. and most of the Jewish commentators, the ancient Talmudic commentators, would not have that reading. I knew you in the womb. This is a very specific reference to the, to the divine mission of the person. Okay, that yeah, it does say that yeah, you, I made you to be a prophet. Right, so exactly. So you had a commission, yeah, yeah, and that's why. But yeah. he wouldn't know us all. It's conjectured, maybe, maybe not. It's not important. It's this unfortunate tendency Christians have to look for proof texts, and if they can't find them, they invent them. I see. So the Old Testament is not condemning it, or what what example did you have? Um, Well, for example, Exodus 21, Hmm. the law is laid down in the case of an accidental miscarriage that results from a physical attack on a woman. It's discussed, it's treated as an injury to the woman, 
and a loss to her husband that could be compensated, but it's not to be treated as homicide. It's not a case of infanticide. Oh. The major Talmudic commentators on the passage drew the obvious conclusion that the writer of the passage and the, and those who read it did not regard abortion as homicide. Oh. So, look, they yeah. had knew nothing about embryology okay. in the Old Testament. Absolutely. Yeah, that's very disconcerting. I'm I'm upset about that because, I mean, uh, they did not know that it was a life right from the start, which is what I believe. So you're saying that they didn't say, well, it's not a big deal. Just pay her off and she'll be fine. I hope she's well. This is the result of an accident. As okay. if, you know, you're having an argument with a woman over a payment of a something. You, you push her, she falls down the stairs, has a miscarriage. Right. So it certainly isn't, we're not dealing with a deliberate uh, case in any event. Well, I have heard of cases where a woman was involved in a car accident and the baby was injured and killed and that they, you know, called that murder. Yes, there have been cases, and that's completely inconsistent with American law. Now, I'm in fully agreement with the uh, murder charge, but if a woman has a right to an abortion up until virtually the last day of her pregnancy, there's no rational way that you can reconcile that with holding somebody accountable for homicide if he kills that Just baby. look into laws on the book, I, I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. I agree with that, okay. Now, the writer, remember, the writers of the Old Testament span a thousand years, actually probably more, represent different circumstances points of view. None of them knew as much about embryology as, say, Aristotle in the fourth century. The foundation for the Christian objection to abortion really can it has very little to do with the passages that are cited. The one thing you can say about the Old Testament, and you could say this also about the uh, early Greeks and early Romans, is their ethic was grounded in love. Okay. And the love of a mother for her child. Okay. And so they would have considered it disgusting to even contemplate aborting that child, it was frowned upon as indecent. Okay. Children were uh, regarded as a blessing, and the of main course. point of getting married was to produce heirs to the family. Who in his right mind would want to kill his own child? Well, as far as killing their own children, I did hear about or read about, or maybe we discussed it, that Greeks and Romans do what was called expose the unwanted child, which basically they just kind of left it out in the elements and left it up to fate, whether he lived or died. That sort of sounds like abortion to me. Well, not really, for several reasons. First of all, you'd have to distinguish between viable and non-viable infants. A non-viable infant is, is an infant that everybody knows is going to be dead within 24 hours. And the father, like in, in Roman terms, the father wouldn't pick up the child because there's no reason to accept responsibility for raising something. So wouldn't even touch it? No. There it is. It's going to die. I got no. That's it. I got nothing That's to do it. with that. Move on. But now, now, viable infant, if it was either the family were not in circumstances they could raise it, or it had some sort of birth defect, for whatever reason, a viable infant that was going to be exposed would be put in a place, a designated place that everybody knew about, usually at twilight, so you wouldn't be recognized, because there's a lot of shame attached to doing this. From what we know from our sources, picked up immediately by somebody, either a childless couple or somebody wanting to raise a slave as a good investment to sell uh, five years later. Wow. The practice of infant exposure was, of course, condemned immediately by Christians and given up. As our discussion goes on, we'll see why. There's a very interesting apostolic text. You know, there are this group of uh, early 
Christian writers called the Apostolic Fathers. Right. They come between the apostles, that is Peter and Paul and, and James and John, who left texts, and the later apologists, of people like Justin Martyr, etc. Okay. And so they're collected usually in people like Clement, who is the third Bishop of Rome, or Ignatius of Antioch. These are documents that were often read in church, right. and they just sort of missed being included in the canon of the scriptures. Okay. So one of them, we don't know the date, it's called the Epistle to Diognetus, written by somebody who calls himself Mathetes, the student or disciple, hmm. maybe, maybe 150 to 200 AD. The writer of this epistle is at great pains to explain that Christians are normal people. We're not a bunch of freaks, he says. Okay. We don't dress funny, for example. All right. We don't live in funny houses. In other words, they're not like the Amish. They're not trying to be distinctive. They're not trying to stand. We pay our taxes. We obey the law. We're normal. We serve in the army. We do everything that everybody else does. And he says, we, we get married. It's just the way everybody else does. We bear children, quote, but they do not expose their offspring. Ah, okay, he's, well. He's not even saying we say it's wrong. Right. He, he's saying we Christians don't do this. This was taken for granted as something distinctive. You know, another, another writer from about the same time says, and boys don't like boys. So there are two things that are forbidden uh, in the, in these apostolic writings to, that make Christians distinct from other people. We're normal in every other way, but we don't kill our babies, we don't expose our babies, and we don't practice sodomy. Well, then it's naturally a part of the Christian revelation not to kill or expose our children. Homosexuality is condemned. It's explicitly. Um, and so, I mean, there are obviously other... The scriptures. There have to be things that, that celebrate life, that call it a gift. God has given you this most precious gift. Don't throw it away. I know that suicide isn't specifically condemned, but by the same token, isn't it sort of an understanding that life is good and should be treasured and valued? Yes. If you can't give it, you can't take it away. You know, death as the punishment for a crime, yes, that, that certainly is understood. Death out of despair of that God can do anything with your life. And, of course, the who is the great suicide in the Bible? I mean, it's Judas. Right. We have this feeling that he's doing the right thing, although we also mm. understood from, from a Christian point of view, if Judas repented and, and, and lived a life of penance and asked forgiveness, then he would have been forgiven even for killing his God. Just like Peter, who took a pass on denying him. Christ right. went through him three times. and Exactly. He did, he did terrible things. But remember that there were Christians before there were New Testaments. So a lot of people misunderstand things. Like Paul says, well, it was necessary that these things be done for in fulfillment of the scriptures. Okay. But not the New Testament scriptures. What right. he's saying is that the life of Christ and the, and the crucifixion play out a scenario that is already there in the prophets. And there's knowledge, a Christian understanding okay, about life yes. that comes out from... It's not within the penumbra. It's, it's within the flesh and blood yes. of the teaching of, of Jesus Christ. It's handed down under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost mm -hmm. to the church at Pentecost and subsequently. And so if somebody had any doubts, well, now, wait a minute. Our Lord never said anything about abortion or infanticide. And everyone else would have said, look, chump, wise up. 
Exactly. I mean, exactly. We, we have been taught that we've been made in God's image, yes. and our life is a gift from God. And that is why Christians must oppose abortion, right? Yeah, well, I would say that Christian, a Christian ban on abortion and infanticide and, exp- and even exposure, which is much more like giving up for adoption, hmm. derives from something very deep and important. And that is the peculiar love, the special love, which parents have for their children. There you Not go. ought to have. They, of course, they ought to have yeah. it. But they do have it if they're normal. As I've said over and over, marriage is a union of two families mm-hmm. for the purpose of bearing children who will inherit the identity, the social status, and property from the grandparents, right. from the two sets of grandparents. The union of man and woman becomes one flesh, right. and this is realized not just metaphorically in the love, but also that literally is one flesh in the production of children, each mm-hmm. one of which represents 50% of the genes of each parent. So to kill your own child is tantamount to suicide. Exactly. Now, are you talking uh, about just Christian marriage and parenthood? No, not at all. The Christian teaching on children and abortion is similar to the teaching on marriage, love, hate, and all these other human emotions and institutions. Okay. Mankind was created in a specific way. We're made in the image of God. Our nature is not open. Marx says man makes his own nature. We can reinvent ourselves. We can change the conditions of the way we live Hmm. and then change our nature. As Christians and as Jews, and by the way, ancient pagans understood we have a specific nature. It is the way we were made. In the early history of ancient peoples, Greeks, Romans, Jews, but you could go over to the Babylonians as well, divorce was virtually unheard of. Hmm. But as they gained in wealth and power and and opportunity, people corrupted marriage Hmm. for political and economic, maybe just hedonistic motives. Marriages in the upper classes became unstable, uh, most unstable among the Jews, by the way. They were much more lax in their divorce proceedings than Greeks or Romans. Wasn't there a thing where Moses could give a writ of divorce for whatever reason? You know what I'm talking about? Yes, of course. Of course. And it got more and more interpreted to me. I don't like your cooking, babe. You know, I'm out of here. Or I don't like you. I saw, hey, I was walking down the street today. I saw a good looking girl. I asked her parents. I've already got the wedding cooked up. Of course, they, they they could have multiple marriages as well. Okay. It took Christ to remind his followers what they should have already known in their hearts. He said, you know, so Moses knew that you had hard hearts and he gave you this, but I'm telling you now, this is not the way it was in the beginning. This is not the way Adam and Eve were, and it's not the way you're supposed to be. And I'm giving you the final word on this. You don't get to play around like this. Right. So in the same way, Greeks, Romans, and Jews all loved and cherished their children. Mm. And it was only later that some of them began to treat them as mere commodities or chattel. You know, people arrange an early marriage or or, or get rid of as an inconvenience. Right. Just as as grown-up children in the Jewish world began to treat their parents as strangers and tried to avoid responsibilities that both Greeks and Jews recognized. You know, there's this great passage where somebody, they come to Jesus, the Pharisees, and they say, well, your disciples pick grain on the Sabbath. They do these terrible things. Right. I mean, we keep the law. Why can't your people keep the law? He says, you keep the law. 
you were told in the Pentateuch, you're told in the Torah that you have to take care of your aged parents. And you've got this legal fiction by um, which you can say, I no longer have to take care of you. He said, that's not honoring your father. Once again, mother. it seems like it's the same old story, had an originally a really great idea, a really good law, a really good standard, and over time it's corrupted by power and selfishness, yeah. greed, all these kinds of things. So, And Christ brings us back to the basics. Right. He brings us back to the fundamental reality that was taught, by the way, both by the early Greeks and Romans. He didn't have any divorce in the, in the Greek world until about the 4th century. Hmm. So. What was common to all these cultures, Christ brings it back to the beginning, brings it okay. back to Adam and Eve, to the a golden age recognition of what marriage is, what parenting is. And Christ's foundation was love and respect and uh, consideration of uh, those around you. I mean, those are all basic things that we know by virtue of what he said, well, pretty much all the time. So all you need is love. <laughs> all you need is love. Ba, 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 right. What am I right on that? Hey, that's oh, okay. Well, we need love. Obviously, love, you know, charity uh, covers a multitude of sins, That's as right. we're told. But in an anti-Christian society such as we live in, we cannot expect that the law will conform to the rules of Christian charity. Yeah. That is simply the truth. And if you and if you think you're going to do it, if you think you're going to have laws restoring the purity of marriage, laws eliminating abortion completely, it's not going to happen in my lifetime, your lifetime, our children's lifetime. Of course, we have to do our best to make our political and legal institutions reflect the reality that has been taught to us by the Christian tradition. Stand up with a social moral yes, and maybe right. it'll prevail. That's right. But our main objective should not be political and legal action. It hmm. should be first, we have to do our duty as husbands and wives, as parents right. and children. Doing a duty in our own life is far more important than anything we can do in public. And secondly... Secondly, to teach the faith, the Christian faith, in its purity that will make it impossible for civilized people who become Christian to commit the crime that dwarfs all the crimes known to the human race, including these monstrous serial killers, yeah. because at least serial, serial killers don't murder their own children, which is perhaps the most obscene crime I could imagine. 